Well, again, good morning. Uh, it's good to see you guys this morning. I uh, hope that you're doing well. Uh, well, as Pastor Rich said, we are today continuing on in our new series here on worship. And uh, if you missed last week, we know that uh, a lot were out last week due to sickness. I mean, what is up with the sickness around here? It's crazy. I don't know about your families, but ours have been uh, destroyed for the last month or so. But uh, in case you weren't here last week, uh, you can actually go onto our website and watch last week's message, or you can uh, download the audio through iTunes podcast and all of that. But uh, basically, just a quick recap for those again who weren't here. Uh, last week, we started a series on worship, and and what we did is we tried to answer the the basic question of what is worship. And, and kind of in that, we talked about how uh, over the last decade or so, worship, that word has been so tied and interconnected to music and singing. Um, and, and that because of that, perhaps there's some confusion around uh, what exactly is it? Is, is that all that it is? Is it more than that? And so uh, because of that, we decided to start there. And the way that I tried to answer that question last week is uh, that I think worship involves at least three uh, crucial components to it in order for it to be true genuine worship. And the three components are, are simply this. Number one, I think it involves our allegiance. And by that, I was arguing that I think God does demand exclusivity uh, in our worship, meaning that he wants us to worship him and him alone, much like a spouse demanding exclusivity and allegiance in a marriage. Uh, we saw that idea uh, laid out in the Ten Commandments, uh, those first two commandments are, are very clear that God desires and even commands that, that we give him our allegiance. And so that was the first component. Uh, the second component we talked about is that, that worship also has to involve our affections, though. That, that in order for worship to be genuine, it has to involve our emotions and our feelings. In other words, God's not worshipped if he's not love and delighted in. Uh, mere lip service or mere outward actions, they, they aren't enough. They aren't pleasing to him. And that's why we talked about uh, why he rebuked the Pharisees. He said, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. That's also why when he was asked, what is the greatest law uh, in the Old Testament? What is the greatest? He said, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then lastly, we talked about the last component that's definitely necessary is our actions. In other words, those outward expressions, things like singing and prayer and bowing down, uh, obeying and submitting ourselves to God, that those two are are just as crucial. But they have to flow out of a heart. Uh, That that inward reality has to be there for the outward expression uh, to be meaningful. And so, uh, again, that, that was the way that we tried to answer last week's question of what is it? Uh, today, we're going to move on and try to answer the question, why do we worship? Uh, but before we go there, let's open up with a word of prayer. Father, we, um, Lord, we long to, to understand these things, Lord. Lord, we long to understand how to worship you, why we should worship you, and, and what it is, Lord. And so, uh, fathers, we uh, move on today and try to answer why uh, do we worship. We just pray Uh, that your Holy Spirit would be here. We know that he is. We pray that he would help us have eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to know. And so uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, on February 7th, 1964, the Beatles landed on American soil at JFK Airport. 
And uh, although Beatlemania was well underway at that point over in Europe, um, it went even farther and crazier uh, with the band's arrival here in the U.S. And no doubt their three appearances on the Ed Sullivan Show added to uh, their popularity, to the hysteria around them, and, and dare I say, even the worship of them. And uh, I know that some of you remember this. Perhaps you saw the Ed Sullivan show or uh, you again, you just were you you were alive back then. You remember it. Um, but just in case you have no idea what I'm talking about, when I say the word uh, Beatlemania, uh, I have a little clip here. I want to show you to help remind you of of what things were like. So. We don't know why we're like this. Did you catch that? Did you catch kind of the confusion in her response and her voice? 
It's kind of almost like, yeah, I don't know what's wrong with me. I mean, I'm normally a sane person, but for whatever reason, I, I, I don't, I'm just, I'm crazy. Well, I think if I was there interviewing that last girl, I think I could have told her why she was like that. In fact, I would have told her the same answer to our question today of why do we worship? And the answer is simply this. You were created to worship. You can't help but worship. And as we said last week, you will either worship God, your creator, or you will worship someone or something else. And so our poor Beatles fans here have chosen to worship four dudes from the UK rather than their creator, rather than God. And so I had, you know, I picked on sports fans last week, so now I'm picking on music fans. But um, again, there's a sense in which today's question that we're trying to answer is actually quite simple. Why do we worship? Well, we worship because we were designed to. We can't help but do it. It's not a matter of worshiping God or not worshiping anything. It's a matter of worshiping God or worshiping something else. And we see the Apostle Paul uh, allude to this and talk about this in his opening chapter to the Romans. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, he says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and listen to this, and they worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And so here in this opening chapter to the book of Romans, God is, uh, the Apostle Paul is telling us that God has clearly revealed himself. He has made himself known plainly to his creation that it's obvious that he is the creator and we are the creation. And yet, even though it's obvious, even though we know this, we still, all of us, before we came to Christ, we all worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. As it says again there in verse 25, we, we exchanged the truth about God for a lie and we worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is blessed. And so what we see is that that we were made to worship God. But because of the fall, because of what we talked about last week with Adam and Eve, our worship is now dysfunctional. It's broken. Um, but even though it's broken and dysfunctional, it still takes place. It's just not on the right things. And, and A.W. Tozer, he put it like this. He said, if we do not know how to worship God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, the human heart will break out somehow like a flood that goes over its banks and will worship. If it does not get going in the right direction, it will go in the wrong direction, but it will worship. Uh, Another author I read said it this way. He said, the worship switch in our souls is always flipped to on. 
And so again, it's not a matter of worshiping your creator or worshiping nothing. No, you will worship. It's a guarantee. It's a matter of who or what will you worship? Will you worship God or will you worship someone or something else? And so why do we worship? Well, very simply, because we were designed to. It's what we do. We can't help but do it. And so great. I answered today's question. It only took me 10 minutes. And so I'm going to pray and we'll see you guys next week. Just kidding. You're not getting off that easy. Um, actually, what I want to do is to just slightly alter that question just a little bit and to try to answer that. And the, the question I want to answer now is not why do we worship, but rather why should we worship the God of the Bible? You see, you're going to worship. But let me give you some reasons now, according to the scriptures, why we should worship our creator, why we should worship the God of the Bible rather than creation. And so with that in mind, uh, if you have a Bible or if you want to grab a pew Bible, turn to page 499 in the pew Bibles. And actually, won't you stand this morning because I want to read to us Psalm 96. And we're going to, from this psalm, uh, learn what uh, we can uh, learn in regards to answering this question about why should we worship. And so Psalm 96, starting in verse 1, it says this. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So our outline this morning in answering the question, why should we worship from Psalm 96 is simply this. Why should you worship the God of the Bible? Number one, because he commands us to. And number two, because he is worthy of it. And so starting with number one, because he commands us to look again at verses one through three. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the people. Skip down to verse seven. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. 
So here in this one psalm alone, we are commanded to sing to the Lord, to bless his name, to tell of his salvation from day to day. We're told to declare his glory and his marvelous works among the nations to to all the people groups. Later on in verse seven, we're commanded to ascribe uh, some things to the Lord. That word ascribe simply means to acknowledge or, or to recognize that these things are true about God. And so we're commanded to, uh, to worship here by recognizing his glory, by recognizing his strength, by ascribing to him the glory due his name. Verse 8 tells us to bring an offering, to come into his courts. Verse 9 tells us to worship him in the splendor of holiness, to tremble before him. Verse 10 tells us to declare uh, to the nations that he reigns. And so in this one psalm alone, we're told over and over again, even commanded over and over again in a variety of ways and a variety of expressions to worship God, to worship our creator. Now, even if this was the only place in all of the scriptures that we were told uh, to worship God, uh, we're commanded to worship God because of how clear and how repetitive it is, uh, that would be enough. In fact, even just one verse in all of the scriptures would be enough for us to know that we are to worship God. But the reality is, is this this is only a tiny fraction of the commands in uh, the book of Psalms where we're told to worship God, let alone the rest of the scriptures. I mean, when you survey the, the scriptures as a whole, you'll find that the command to worship God is by far the most prominent command in all of the scriptures. This is What we are to do. And so why should you do it? Well, very simply, because he commands us to. Now, let me deal with a couple of objections here, because maybe you're like, I already don't like where this sermon's going. Um, Maybe for some of you, you're sitting here and you're you're thinking to yourself uh, the, the, the thought of we should worship God because he commands us to. Maybe that bothers you. Maybe you've had thoughts like, well, wow, God is so needy that he actually has to command us uh, to worship him. Or God is so insecure that that he needs us to praise him, to bow down before him so that he can, you know, feel good about himself at night. Right now, if that thoughts ever crossed your mind, whether you're willing to admit it or not, let me just respond with a couple quick thoughts here. One, if that thought has crossed your mind, you're not alone in that. I mean, we hear people uh, in our culture all the time accuse God of being a megalomaniac or uh, being narcissistic. In fact, C.S. Lewis, in his book, Reflection on the Psalms, admitted that that he himself, uh, to some degree, struggled with this when he first started to believe in God. He said as he first started to believe in God and as he read the Psalms, um, he felt like they pictured God. uh, Here's him quoting now. um, They pictured God as as, uh, craving our worship like a vain woman who wants compliments. Number one, that's a very sexist comment, C.S. Lewis, uh, but it was a different age back then. Not, you know, there's vain men. Um, but you get that idea, that idea that, that, that it's picturing God like he's insecure and needy, that he's, he's like this vain uh, woman, this vain person. But listen to where Lewis landed after he thought about this and after, as he uh, searched the scriptures, and as he wrestled with this idea. Uh, and it's a little bit of a longer quote, but I want you to hang here with me because it's so good. He, he says this, quote, but the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or of anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment 
spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistress. Readers their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical figures, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. Except where intolerable adverse circumstances interfere, Praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. I had not noticed almost, or I had not noticed either, that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmist and telling everyone to praise God are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us as regards the supremely valuable what we delight to do. Indeed, what we can't help but doing about everything else that we value. He continues, he says, I think that we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but it completes the enjoyment. It is, an, it is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and and to not to be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come to an unexpected grandeur, uh, to turn the road uh, upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur, and then to have to keep silent because the people you are with care nothing for it, no more than a tin can in the ditch. To hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. And so Lewis, what he's saying is that he came to realize that, that number one, when we praise, uh, that, that that's naturally what anyone does when they value something. They almost can't help but, but talk about something that they value. But not only that, they actually try to convince others of it. They try to get others to join them in that. And that actually it's not until we express uh, that praise, that enjoyment of it, that, that, that it's made complete, that it's, it's part of the enjoyment process. And so if Lewis is correct, and I think that he is, then actually God's command to worship him through the psalmist and the other writers of scripture, it's not because he's insecure or because he needs us to or because he's vain, but it's actually because he loves us. Uh, John Piper, in summarizing this quote, puts it this way. He says, so if Lewis is telling us that God's pursuit of our praise of him is not weak, self-seeking, but the epitome of self-giving love. If our satisfaction in God is incomplete until expressed in praise of him for satisfying us with himself, then God's effort to elicit my worship, what Lewis before thought was an inexcusable selfishness, is both the most loving thing that he could possibly do for me and the most glorifying thing that he could possibly do for himself. And so again, when we think about this objection of being bothered that God commands us to worship him, it actually doesn't hold up very well. In fact, I was thinking about it some more. And another thought that I came up with was that that if you go back to the first couple chapters of Genesis, uh, one of the things you'll see is that after God creates Adam and Eve, he has to tell them what to eat. 
He has to command them, uh, you know, eat these things and don't eat these things. But notice that he doesn't have to tell them to eat. No, you see, eating was intuitive to them. They, they understood that, that they would eat. It was just a matter of God telling them what to eat. In the same way, God doesn't have to tell us to worship. Because like eating, worship is intuitive. But he does have to tell us what to worship, namely himself. Uh, you see, uh, it's like my son, Henry. I think we have a picture of him here. Um, he's one and a half years old. And this little dude literally puts everything in his mouth and tries to eat it. Uh, you take him outside and, and immediately he goes and he starts putting rocks in his mouth because our neighbor has like this big rock bed. He's, he's eating rocks. He's, he's putting dirt in his mouth. Um, and in fact, we went on a family vacation to Lake Michigan this year. That's where this picture's from. And uh, every time we would kind of turn our, away, he'd be shoving fistfuls of sand into his mouth. And it was super annoying. And uh, each time we'd have to say, no, no, buddy, no, you know, don't eat sand. Sand's not good for you if you're hungry. Here, here's some raisin. Here's, here's some goldfish. Eat these things. You see, I think that it could be argued in the same way. Um, for Faith and I, our love demanded that we help teach Henry to eat the right things and to not eat the wrong things. And I think that it could be argued in the same way that God's love for us demands that he teaches us, even commands us to worship the right thing, again, himself, uh, the thing that we were designed to do, and not the wrong thing. Not to worship those things that will, in the end, harm us. And so again, number one, why should we worship the God of the Bible? Well, because the God of the Bible, in the Bible, commands us to worship him. And as we just saw, that's out of his love. It's not because he's vain. It's not because he needs us to. And so let's move on and look at the second reason why we should worship the God of the Bible. And that is this, because he and he alone is worthy of our worship. You see, when we think about the worthiness of God and when you read the Bible and see uh, when it starts to talk about why he's worthy of our worship, what you'll see is that over and over again, there's there's basically two reasons why he's worthy of our worship. Number one, because of who he is. In other words, he's worthy because of his character, because of his divine nature. And then secondly, because of what he has done, both what he's done in the past and what he has promised to do in the future. And so let's go back to our text here, Psalm 96, and picking it up in verse 4, we read this. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, he is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. You see, the English word worship, it comes from an older English word, which meant worth-ship. And here in these verses, we're told that Yahweh, that the God of the Bible, that he is great, that he's worthy of our praise, that he is to be feared above all the other gods. And so the psalm here is making a very strong appeal for us to worship God, to fear him. And then immediately, in case we're starting to wonder, well, why is he so great? Why should we worship him? He starts to answer our objections by declaring who God is and by declaring what God has done and what God will do. He starts out, he says, look, the reason the God of the Bible is to be feared above all gods is because all the other gods are worthless idols. And yet, in contrast to Yahweh, the Lord, he made the heavens. 
And so again, here the psalmist is appealing to us to worship, uh, that, that we should worship God based on his worthiness. He says, look, all those other gods, those man-made idols, they're worthless. Don't waste your time. Don't waste your worship on them. You see, if you're going to worship something and you will worship something, at least make it count. Let's worship the one who made the heavens. And that word heaven there refers to the sky, so to the universe. And if you were here last week, you'll remember we talked about the Hubble telescope and, and we even looked at some of those amazing, breathtaking images that it's given us uh, over the years of our universe. And so the psalmist is saying, look, would you rather bow down to a wooden block, this wooden statue that you've made, that you've made with your own hands? Or would you rather worship the one who created the universe, who created the skies? Now, look, some of you are probably like, well, that's dumb. I mean, I wouldn't worship a wooden block either or a golden statue. Well, maybe not. But you, you are tempted to, equally, uh, to, to worship equally dumb stuff. Some of us wor- worship material things, things like our iPhones, things like bigger TVs or, or whatever else you're into. I mean, do you realize, guys, that most of the stuff we buy nowadays is probably just 10 years away from being in the trash being in a trash dump, or at the very least, if you're a good human being in the thrift store, right? And if it's technology-based, you're looking at more like two to three years. You see, at the very least, things are going to break down. And, and let's just be honest. If the thing that you worship can, can be destroyed by you tripping and falling, and it, it's shattering, uh, like this picture of this iPhone here, if that's the thing that you worship, then if, if it can be destroyed, I'm not real sure that it's worthy of worship. Maybe you're like, well, I don't worship my iPhone. Really? I mean, based upon how much time you spend on it and how much it controls your life, then I, w- I would think we could argue that maybe some of us do. Or maybe for you, it's not material possessions, but instead for you, it's, it's other people. Maybe you're a little bit more like the sports fan or like the Beatles fan that we just uh, saw in our video. Well, I just want to say this. If, if your idol, if the thing that you worship can look like this, eventually... <laughs> You know, I mean, you remember how they were talking about Paul. They, they really liked Paul. If, if this is what happens to the God that you worship, if it becomes haggard looking and eventually dies like two of the four Beatles have and the other two are knocking on the door, I'm not sure that it's worthy of your worship. And yet God, in contrast to all of this, as it says in verse six, he has splendor and majesty and strength and beauty. You see, those other things, they, they may appear to have some of those qualities for a moment. They may have some of those qualities for a season, but it will not last. No, their beauty will fade. Yes, Paul McCartney was a decent looking dude at one point, but it's faded. His musical talent has faded and eventually it will be snuffed out. And yet we're told that the God of the Bible is the same today, yesterday and forever. And so his splendor and his majesty, it does not change. His strength and his beauty, it does not fade. It is not diminished. No, it always was. It always uh, will be. Um, it always has been and it always will be. You don't understand what I'm trying to say. And so we see here in this psalm that our God, the God of the Bible, is worthy of our worship because of who he is. Because of his divine nature, because of his character. But we also see in the psalm that he's worthy of our worship because of what he has done in the past and because of what he will do in the future. Look again at verse two and three. 
Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. And so we're told to sing and to bless the Lord. We're told to tell of his salvation and to declare his marvelous works among all peoples. Now, I don't know exactly what salvation act or what marvelous works the the psalmist had in mind here when he told us to do this. He could have perhaps been thinking of the Exodus when God miraculously delivered them from slavery. Uh, He perhaps could have been thinking of some other major victory uh, in the Old Testament where God delivered his people. I don't know. But I know this, that either way, whatever he was thinking of, that it was only a shadow of the salvation that would come later in Jesus Christ. You see, one of the primary reasons the God of the Bible is worthy of our worship, that he's worthy, uh, is is because of his son, Jesus. You see, in Jesus' death and resurrection, God has provided salvation for us. You see, all of humanity was on a collision course with the wrath of God. Like an 18-wheeler headed towards a smart car. And yet, God and his son, Jesus, provided a way out. You see, if you know Jesus Christ, if you have received him, if you're in a relationship with him, then for you, Jesus got in your smart car. And not only did he get in there, but he kicked you out. And he went and in our place. He endured the collision of the wrath of God for you. As it says in First uh, Thessalonians 5, 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so why should we worship uh, God? Because we should worship him because of the salvation that he has provided for us in Jesus Christ. And so that's what he's done. Well, let's move on and look at verses 11 through 13, which describe the future, which tell us why we should worship him because of what he's going to do one day. Verse 11, let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world and righteousness and the peoples and his faithfulness. So not only has God done amazing things in the past, but here we see that he promises to come again. And that when he comes for his second time, he's going to come and he's going to bring justice. Because as it says there, he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in faithfulness. We see in verses 11 and 12, even the anticipation of creation worshiping and worship and rejoicing in God when he comes. And that's because that uh, when he comes, he is going to finally release creation from the effects of the curse, from the effects of the fall. We talked about this in our Romans 8 series. And so all of this, what this means is this, that if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, if you've not repented of your sin and put your faith in him, then unfortunately for you, uh, like we mentioned a moment ago, you're still very much on a collision course with God's wrath. But as we saw in First Thessalonians, that is not God's desire for you. No, his desire for you, his desire for me is that we would obtain salvation. And that salvation only comes through Jesus. And yes, the same Jesus, he, he came the first time to bring salvation, but he's coming again to bring judgment. And that's great news for those of us who have received him and who know him and who love him. But that is terrifying news for those who have rejected him. 
for those who are not yet in relationship with him. And so if that's you today, if you have never placed your faith, if you never placed your trust in Jesus and what he has done for you, then I just want to plead with you today to do that. Don't wait. You can do that right now. You can just again say, Lord, I'm sorry. Lord, I repent. I know that I have worshiped other things beside you. But Lord, I tell you right now, I want to turn from that and put my trust in you and what you've done. And I want to receive the Lord Jesus and I want to start a new life. And you can do that right now in your hearts. And I want to, again, plead with you to do that. And so as we wrap up here, let's review what we've said so far. Why should you and I worship the God of the Bible? Number one, because he commanded us to. And that command is actually motivated out of his love for us. Secondly, though, because he is worthy and he's worthy because of who he is, his character and his nature, and because of what he has done and what he promises still to do. And there's so much more I wanted to say on this. In fact, when I originally was thinking of this, I had like two or three other reasons I wanted to share, but I'll have to leave it there for now. And so in closing, I want us just to turn our attention, to turn our focus on Jesus and on his worthiness. You see, because salvation comes to us through Jesus, because it comes through his death and his resurrection, he is worthy of our worship. You see, there's this really amazing passage in the book of Revelation where the apostle John, he's, he has this vision of heaven. And as he's there, he realizes that there's this major problem. And the problem is this. There's this scroll that needs to be opened, but they can't find anyone to open it. They can't find anyone who's worthy enough to do it. And so as we close this morning, I just want to finish by reading this section, uh, reading this whole chapter, actually, in Revelation 5. And, Ben, you can go ahead and come on up here. So Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with the seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders, he said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though he had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood, you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard uh, around the throne and the living creatures, the elders, and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. 
And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This lion, this slain lamb is our savior, King Jesus. And he is indeed worthy of our worship. And we're going to continue to sing now. And here in a moment, uh, as we continue to sing, I just, I just want to encourage you. As we sing about this amazing salvation that King Jesus has purchased for us. That we uh, could just turn our eyes and our hearts towards him. That we could set our allegiance and our affections on him and sing and worship. Because he is truly worthy of it. Let's pray. Father. God, our hearts are so easily drawn to worthless things. Father, we so, so quickly forget who you are and what you've done. Lord, let's pray right now in this moment that, that the Holy Spirit, that he would, would just, again, give us those eyes, those eyes to see and those hearts to know. That, Lord, we could just get a glimpse of, uh, of your worthiness, Lord. And, God, that our hearts, as we, as we would see that glimpse of your worthiness, Lord, that our hearts would be satisfied. God, that we'd be moved to this place of worship. God, that we'd finally be able to describe and to acknowledge uh, that you and you alone are worthy of our praise. And so help us here, Lord. Help us to, again, turn our hearts to Jesus. To see him in his beauty, to see him in his splendor, and to respond to that in worship. And we pray this in his name. Amen.